but you kind of also have to put yourself in a position to have something interesting to talk about to maybe hit it too. No, no, a rolling start could just be talking about a rolling start. And that's true, right? How how we're not good at these rolling starts. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit meta. Self awareness. That's that's key. That doesn't matter anymore. I just saw the Prager Kegger thing. Welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Hey pals, how are we doing today? And waiting over there in the margins is the author of the In the Margin series, Dana Roach. Good evening, how's it going? And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content such as podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on EDHRECcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. So, what's our topic this week, fellas? Tribal. We're going to talk tribal. Yes, we are. We're going to talk about the top tribes that we see in EDH. Real quick, do you guys have any tribal decks? Um, I currently have one that's put together and functioning on a Sphinx tribal deck. Which commander do you use for that? There are a couple of different options, I think. There are. Um, I'm currently using Asperia Supreme Judge, and that's what I've always used pretty much. Now that one's from Ravnica, makes you draw cards whenever people attack you? Yes. 6-4, uh, so it's on a four-turn clock for commander damage. So yeah, that's that's the one I found works the best. Um, the other Asperia is a 3-6, I believe. So it's much tougher to deal with commander damage. And Azor and Madomi, who both also work, are too threatening, I think. Particularly for a Sphinx tribal deck, it's not that strong necessarily. And when people see those two in the command zone, they're much more cautious. Because, you know, Madomi gives you extra turns. Azor is a Sphinx's rev and a stick. So people don't want to deal with that. Whereas Asperia, they just don't care. So those are all Azorius Sphinxes, and I'm yeah. assuming that you like having the white for the color access. Makes a huge difference, yeah. Yeah, because there's also the Unesh, which is another Sphinx tribal commander, but he's mono blue. And that right. one doesn't quite tickle your fancy? And he probably plays best with, I mean, he actually interacts with Sphinxes, but no. Um, I've seen some Unesh decks, and they kind of run almost like Storm. It's like called basically called a Sphinx Storm deck. So they're playing a bunch of Sphinxes and bouncing them and doing that kind of thing over and over to, to draw down to a combo. But no, that doesn't really interest me play style-wise. I like the kind of slow control of Azorius. I do actually have a kind of funny story about a friend of mine who recently built an Unesh deck. Unesh is one of those commanders. He's pretty strange the way that he works, but he's sort of a factor fiction on a stick. Whenever a Sphinx enters the battlefield under your control, you get to reveal the top four cards of your library. Someone will separate them into two piles and you'll get one. A buddy of mine built an Unesh deck filled with a bunch of Sphinxes and stuff. But he tried to cast Rite of Rep- Replication on his own Unesh with the thought that, like, hey, I'll get to do Unesh's ability five times and draw a bunch of cards. That's not quite how it works, because each Unesh copy, even though they all die because they're legendary and immediately see each other, but each Unesh copy triggers, like, five or six additional times, which means he would have drawn, like, 250 cards or something. The math was pretty weird. <laughs> so we made sure that we were we let him take that move back. So he was like, oh, maybe I don't want to automatically kill myself. You should have let him happen. Just learn learn those lessons the hard way, man. Probably. Yeah, that, that is the best way to teach. You, you touch the fire, you learn not to get burned. Matt, how about you? Do you have any tribal decks? I do. I got a couple. So uh, like I mentioned last week, 
couple of my buddies and I, we went in on the commander precons. Everybody picked one and we kind of did a precon league. Uh, and I was the vampires deck, uh, which was a lot of fun. So obviously I went with Edgar Markov because he's the only real vampire tribal deck. The rest of the, the precon was kind of scattered. And I've tuned that up since then. I still have it together. I still enjoy playing it. I'm probably going to shift that now that I don't have my Narset deck anymore. I'm probably going to tune Edgar to be my, not competitive, but my more tuned and, and high power deck. It's not all one and two drops. Uh, I still play a few uh, five and six drops. I think I play one six drop just so that I have some sort of a chance in a multiplayer game. I don't want to just, you know, everybody else is playing Rider Replication on, you know, Woodfall Primus and I'm playing, you know, a two one flyer. Like that just seems pretty sad. So I've tuned that up a little bit. It's, it's still really fun. And also hearkening back to last week, I have a uh, an Azuri Progress deck. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's really fun. It's it's mostly mono green, but then I play blue for stuff like uh, Intruder Alarm because I play Presence of Gond combo so I can make infinite elves and get an infinite experience counters and all that kind of fun stuff. And then, you know, one shot people real quick. Yeah, so do have an Azuri Claw Progress deck. I've been kind of bored with it. I might re redo it because I still like the color combo. I still like, you know, the, the counters theme, but the elves is just kind of lukewarm. It's kind of so-so. The deck, not the mm-hmm. commander, the deck. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I, I don't know, man. I'm just saying Azuri, you look at Azuri, power two or less. It's kind of weird. Mentor of the Meek also has stuff about power two or less. So does Bygone yeah, Bishop. Yeah, we, we, we gave you your... Green has Elemental Bond, which cares about power three or greater. I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So that means that the two of your decks, we've made fun of your commanders, Azuri and Narset. So... It's true. We'll have to see what else is on your list we can tear we, into we have to. We'll, we'll have to... We'll, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm basic and I play Angry Omnath, so we have to find a way to make fun of that. And uh, Edgar Markov, because I play... As of today, banned in 1v1, because 1v1 for the two people that actually play 1v1 Commander on Magic Online. Wow. Have you met anybody that actually plays that format, though? I haven't myself, no. It's actually really popular in paper uh, around here, where I'm at in Wisconsin. Really? That's, that's kind of the competitive, like, instead of CEDH, the people that want to play competitively play 1v1 with a 1v1 ban list. All right. I doubt it's popular anywhere else. I've never heard anybody else talking about playing it. But yeah, they, the, the people here, for some reason, that's that's what they've latched onto as the competitive format, and that's what gets played. So Matt, you mentioned Edgar Markov. I also have an Edgar Markov deck, but there's only one reason I actually built it. A friend of mine is actually depicted in the art of one of the cards that came in the Edgar Markov pre-constructed deck. That card is Patron of the Vein, a six-mana flying vampire that eats up another creature and then gives plus one counters to all of your vampires. It's awesome, and that's my friend Hans in the art of that card. The artist Tommy Arnold hired him to draw his likeness as a vampire that is having a blood rave party, and it's pretty awesome. Very cool. So the way that I play that deck, I just have to go find that particular card, and if I don't play it, then I don't win. That's how I feel. So you just tutor for it every turn. It's like turn two, and you... Well, it makes it tough because I don't actually run tutors on that deck, so I lose a lot. Even when I win. That's fair. It is interesting, though, and this might be something that we get into later on in the podcast, but you mentioned also having a lot of low-to-the-ground, smaller creature low drops in the Edgar Markov deck as opposed to a lot of six drops or seven drops. And that's definitely one of those play styles that Edgar Markov likes to cultivate is having a lot of smaller creatures because he duplicates the number of creatures that you have. Every time that you play a 1-1 or a 2-2, really small creatures, he gives you an additional 
token because of his eminence ability. So having a bunch of expensive vampires feels kind of off. I make an exception because patron of the vein, I have to play it. I'm literally making my own super friend deck over here. Not planeswalkers, but still. But yeah, high cost vampires, they're really anathema to Edgar Markov's strategy. Well, and they're the best vampires, like as in like fun to play, like all the fun vampires are the expensive ones. Mm-hmm. And all the ones that work best in Edgar are just like, you know, the one and two drops that aren't terribly exciting. So the better you make the Edgar deck, the less kind of interesting it is. Yeah. So we played it a lot just because, like I said, we did a pre-con league with those. So like Bloodlord of Vasgoth, where everybody has to sacrifice a non-vampire creature at the beginning of their turn. Uh, that's Anawan, actually. Anawan, him. Yeah. I haven't played that deck in a month or two, so. But yeah, so him uh, was really good to play against the dragons because unless they have some way to give him haste, like they play the Ur Dragon and then he dies. And that was always really fun. Alrighty, I think we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, though. We should probably dial it back so that we can get focused on the main topic. Specifically, we want to look at the top tribes of all time on EDH. But we also kind of need to understand what makes a deck a tribal deck, at least when we're considering the statistical analysis on the website. We do have a couple of metrics that our EDH rec lord and savior, Donald Miner, was able to give us about what makes something tick as a specifically tribal deck. What separates it from just being a regular deck that happens to have a lot of a specific creature type in it, but more specifically a tribal deck? What is the difference between those? When you guys want to rattle off those, those differences, those metrics that we use? Sure. So if a deck shows up on EDH rec, you know, when they scrape the data, you know, there's two certain conditions that the deck has to meet for it to qualify as a quote unquote tribal deck. Um, The first one is it has to have at least 12 creatures or more. And the second condition is that at least of those 12 creatures, 75% of them. So, you know, if there's only 12, nine have to be a certain tribe, they all have to have, you know, the same tribe, whether it's elves, dwarves, warriors, robots, whatever that, you know, that common theme is, um, they all have to be ticking the same. So one, if those two conditions are met, it'll go into the, the pool of tribal decks as well. Right. And that'll help us wean down the decks to see the ones that are actually more dedicated to a tribal strategy. There could be a lot of decks out there. For example, their big ramp, get a whole bunch of mana decks, and they happen to use a lot of elves to do that because elves frequently are called quote unquote mana dorks and they can produce a lot of mana they might happen to have a lot of elves but they're not specifically an elf deck that metric of the 75 percent of the creatures must fit the creature type that helps us wean down to find the decks that are more specifically dedicated to a tribal strategy i will say here while i understand the metric don has to use to filter out you know what decks are tribal and which ones aren't and 60 percent does make sense for me personally, if you're running creatures in your deck that aren't part of the tribe, it is not a tribal deck. Oh. And 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 you're kind of a hack. Uh, so you're a tribal purist. I absolutely am. I mean, I don't even like clones and changelings in tribal decks. Even that feels like a cheat. But it, it's definitely a cheat when you're that guy who's... And I've seen this a lot. And I've seen it on YouTube channels with people playing, you know games that they listen to their channel where it's like i'm playing you know dragon tribal and they open birds of paradise and you know turn two sakura tribe elder and turn three we get oracle of moldiah and turn four we get acidic slime and i'm like that's not a dragon tribal deck when all you're playing is good cards and three good dragons okay so i have a question for you now with that particular like oh if you have a human in this dragon deck it doesn't make sense but what about cards such as dragon speaker shaman that's a three mana two two that reduces the cost of all of your dragons by two colorless mana i think that's fair i think if the if the card interacts with the creature type in question that seems fair okay okay 
So we've got a bit of an extremist over here, guys. But purist, purist is what purist, they call themselves. Exactly. Oh, I see. Fanatic, whatever, <laughs> you know. So without looking, have you guys looked at the top tribes of all time on EDA track? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm there right now. <laughs> oh, well, then never mind. I was going to have you guess, but it sounds like you're already there on the page. Well, some of us professionals and do our homework and just bring our homework to class. I'm not currently on the page, so maybe I can uh, take this guessing game. I was going to ask, what are the most popular tribes? Do you think you'd be able to predict what the most popular tribe is? I have already glanced at the page, so I do know the answer, but I don't think I'd be able to recite it. But even then, the most popular tribes in EDH are not the tribes that I expected them to be. Did you guys have the same reaction? The top five, at least, that I looked at were the top five I would have guessed. Maybe not in that sequence, but they were the five that I would have probably thought. Really? I was completely surprised. Dana, do you want to tell us what the most popular tribes are? Um, I don't have it in front of me in order, but it was dragons, elves, zombies, goblins, and enough now i've got the fifth one vampires i believe is that correct yes you're you're correct sir nice job not quite in that order though yeah not quite in that order so number one of all time we got zombies number two of all time we got dragons three is elves four is vampires and five is goblins so just for the top five quick rundown but things things do get a little wonky after that i, I was surprised at some of the ones then as we get a little bit past the top five yeah number six blew me away because i didn't see it coming, but then when I like started digging, it made a little bit more sense because it just happens to be a lot of good creatures in these colors happened all share a tribe, and that is wizards. Just a lot of really good creatures happen to be wizards, which you're only playing 12 creatures, and a lot of them are wizards like Snapcaster Mage or Galecaster Colossus, stuff like that. You're going to be dubbed a tribal deck, even though you may not have intentionally done it. Yeah, there's probably a lot of Talran decks that just accidentally look like a tribal deck by virtue of wizards that interact with the spells the deck wants to cast, that kind of thing. So Dana, you mentioned that you think you probably would have expected the top tribes of all time. I know I'm certainly not in this boat, I've said it a couple times by now, but I especially didn't expect zombies to be the number one most popular tribe in Commander. Interesting. See, now, I, zombies was the one I knew would be number one. I mean, it has the most lords, it has the most strong creatures... It's a, the original tribe back from Alpha. So Zombies was, was the one that I, whose position I was most sure of. Yeah. So, I mean, once I've started looking at the data, it does start to make a whole lot more sense to me. When you click on the EDH Rec Top Tribes page, you can go through all of those top tribes. And if you click on any of them, it'll take you to the top commanders that those tribes belong to. So, for example, looking at the top commanders for zombie tribal decks, we see Gisa and Giralf, which can cast zombies from your graveyard. Grimgrin, which is just good and is an awesome zombie himself the scarab god who also has some zombie tribal synergies by creating zombies and then letting you scry and drain opponents for each zombie you control ghoul color gisa comes up next and she can help create more zombie tokens we also go all the way down to sadisi brood tyrant who makes it a zombie tokens there's a whole bunch of zombie options here and i think that might be one of the key things for why zombies is such a popular tribe there are so many commanders that allow you to play a zombie synergy deck. The thing that I had actually expected to be the number one top played tribe was actually elves. Elves is one of the ways that I got my start just playing magic in general. They're such a famous quintessential tribe of Magic the Gathering. But when you look at the top commanders for an elf deck, you get things like Azuri, Renegade Leader, which helps pump up and save the lives of your elves. But then you go to Nath of the Guiltleaf, who isn't quite elvish. He just cares that... I mean, he does create elf tokens, but he just cares that people discard cards. There's also Frey Elise, Lanowar's Fury, who also creates elf tokens, and so does the next one, Reese the Redeemed. 
but they're sort of less on theme. They're not creating as many tokens as, for example, you know, Google Color Gisa was, or maybe necessarily Sadisi. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that about Reese the Redeemed. He makes a lot of tokens, but he can also make any type of token. He doesn't seem specifically elvish. So I guess ultimately what I'm trying to say here is that having a number of different possible commanders definitely helps push you into the higher ranks of the top tribes of all time. Elves, goblins, a couple of those other tribes, they are very popular, but they don't have the same breadth as zombies do. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the part that, can, that surprised me, like, I wasn't really surprised to see zombies... In the top five, I, I assumed it would be just because it's always been a very popular one. But dragons being number two and, and number two by a pretty wide margin. Um, that's what surprised me because you always talk about, you know, you talk to a newer player and if they open a dragon in their first pack, like they remember that. Dragons are just like very iconic. They had the pre-con, which pushed them even further that direction into being, you know, a, a more casual but widespread appeal. You know, everybody knows what a dragon is. I, I was kind of expecting dragons, especially with the dragon precon and no zombie precon. I thought the dragon tribe would be the most played tribe according to the site. So that was a little surprising, but you know, what, what you going to do? It is kind of funny to look at the top commander for a dragon tribal deck. I am also surprised here to see that the Ur dragon, the one that came from the precon and makes all of your dragons cheaper and also cares whenever dragons attack, drawing you cards, playing things for free. He's actually the number two dragon commander the first one is actually scion of the ur dragon his predecessor which turns into different dragons that are just contained within your library that's a pretty interesting metric to see as well there's almost twice as many scion of the ur dragon decks as there are ur dragon decks that's pretty funny well and scion's been around for a long time too like it's not a new card and correct me if i'm wrong one of the one of the first five color dragons so you you know casual players over you know however many years they could just stockpile and put them into the scion decks whereas the ur dragon is a little bit newer and kind of like i said it has a little more casual appeal to it so a lot of those players that you know buy the precon and just that's their deck they may not be the people that are you know putting their deck lists online and tracking it they're just the people that play kitchen table magic and don't even know what this podcast is which is absurd and they need to know well it's, it's kind of similar to the to the to the zombie deck too though where like you're talking about there's a mono black zombie commander that's perfectly playable in Sidisi. Undead Vizier, and there is black red zombie commander, or excuse me, black blue in Grimgrin, and there's three colors with Thraxamundar. And if you want to go black green, there's Glissa and there's Gerard. The same thing is true of dragons, where you have, you know, a couple of different five color options, and you have Karthus and Jund, and you have Zorian of the Claw in mono red, and you have two different Atarkas in green red, and you have, you know, Bloodwing the Risen in black red. So whatever configuration you want, there's probably a pretty viable dragon commander just like there is for zombies in their colors. And that really isn't true the further you get down the list where you're really kind of locked into one or two color combinations. That's a really good point. The multicoloredness is another really big factor. We saw that just going over our top commanders of all time episode. All of the top commanders of all time happen to be multicolored. Having not just a lot of commanders, like I mentioned, the breadth of zombie commanders is definitely important, but also having access in different colors is pretty important as well. With that said, it's pretty interesting to see vampires be as popular as it is because they, as Matt mentioned earlier, sort of only have one really strictly vampire tribal option in the form of Edgar Markov, the eminence commander who makes vampire tokens. Yeah, and when you when you look at his page at the vampires page too, like you see Edgar has way more decks on there, and and just because you know Dane and I talked because we both at one point had an Edgar Markov deck, and Joey, you do too, but like 
He's a little more for the, the more competitive type that probably tunes and keeps track of those decks. So I think that's probably one big thing. Man, Ed, Edgar Markov, he's very aggressive, and I mean, he's banned in 1v1. So I think just the type of player, you know, probably registers their decks a little bit more. I would also note that those three tribes in particular are in in the actual game of Magic itself, kind of the premier tribes in their colors. Obviously, vampires and, and zombies share, but like pretty much every set, you get a new dragon at Mythic, per, more often than not. If there's vampires in the world, you'll get at least one probably good vampire at rare. There's usually one good zombie, at sometimes at uncommon, if not rare. Whenever I go through this, the set complete set list at the end of every spoiler week, I'm looking for cards for myself that I want, but I also like make mental notes like, well, that'll be really good in my friend's Thraxum under zombie deck, or that'll be good in this person's whatever deck. And consistently, I'm like, oh man, that's going to be ridiculous in his zombie deck, or oh, that's going to be gross in this dragon deck. Those three tribes in particular, I find myself thinking that way more than I do with other tribes. That's another excellent point. We do see them those tribes show up quite a lot in every new set. You'll always have a new zombie. You'll always have a new dragon. You'll even have some new angels and stuff. You'll have a couple of new goblins. We see them surface a lot. One of the tribes that I had expected to be among the top five was actually Slivers. There's, I know, like three different people with a Sliver deck that play Commander, but Slivers is not something that we see all that often, which is why Slivers, instead of being in the top five, actually comes in as the number seven most popular tribe of all time. They're really cool. They're awesome. It's five colors. You get to do a whole bunch of crazy things with all of these creatures that share abilities. But we don't get new ones with every set the same way that we do with dragons. So that definitely helps push dragons or vampires or elves or zombies into higher popularity. Yeah, out of sight, out of mind is a real thing. Like, they haven't printed slivers since the core set a few years back. And there's not a lot of new slivers coming out to create new excitement about it. Whereas, you know, vampires, I'm pretty sure one of the big reasons they're so high right now is because, yes, they had the pre-con deck, but then uh, Ixalan block, that had a ton of new vampires. And it wasn't just, you know, more red-black vampires, but it was giving us white vampires to fit into Edgar Markov. So you just got a lot of new stuff to really push that that tribe specifically. Whereas, like you said, you know, you know a lot of people that are maybe a little more established that play Slivers, but, I mean, there's, there's a non-zero amount of players that are newer don't know what a Sliver is. Well, in, in, it's, not, it's not just that Ixalan had them. Innistrad is a vampire-rich plane, and, and mm-hmm. um, Zendikar is a vampire-rich plane, and, and there's a ton of zombies, for example, on Amonkhet, in addition to just tending to show up in most blocks in among themselves. So those are also three tribes that have a recent representation versus, like you said, slivers. You get a burst of slivers every 10 years, and then it's silent for 10 years. So... You mentioned Ixalan. We've also seen a couple of the commanders from 2017. This past year, 2017, has definitely been a very tribal year for all of Magic. And we've seen that influence, I'm sure, a lot in our own personal games. I know before 2017, for me, there weren't a lot of tribal decks in my meta at all. We kind of all scoffed at the idea. None of us were really dedicated to playing a bunch of those specific creature types because we wanted to play more of the generic good stuff for our own decks. What have the effects been for you guys in your metas, considering the effects of Ixalan, Commander 2017, all of these big tribal things? How have they affected your personal play styles? I don't think it's changed a lot for me, but I would say part of that reason is I tend to I play in a meta that's very theme-based. Like when you sit down with a new deck, the first thing everyone says is, what does it do? And they want a specific answer. 
It's a, you know, and tribal's, tribal is a thing. Well, it's a vampire tribal deck. Well, that's a good enough answer. Or it's trying to, you know, draw a bunch of cards to hit Lab Man, which would get you laughed at, but whatever. It's a thing. So, it, like, people are going to want your deck to, to have some kind of specific interaction or theme or, or end goal. And tribal plays into that. So, it, it was just doing what everyone was already doing in my meta. Matt, how about you? Um, for me, like I said, we did a pre-con league, so we kind of created a meta, you know, and that kind of, every, so after every game, how we did it in this league was after we, you know, we play a game, then you can change two cards. If you won that game, you can change three. And so we played a game, changed some cards, played a game, changed some cards. So we, we created a meta that was pretty self-contained, um, but it evolved together. So that was just a really fun experiment that we did um, that I think, you know, my buddies and I were going to do it again this year with the new pre-cons. But that was just one thing. And then, you know, once we hit a certain point, we're kind of like, okay, this is kind of run its course. And we opened it up and, you know, kind of when our, you know, the decks went their own ways, you know, one deck got scrapped, another one got parted into three different decks. Um, and then mine uh, still together along with the Dragons deck. But as, as far as just getting out into different play styles beyond that, I've never really been a huge tribal person. Just I know that those type of those types of decks have a lot of appeal to, uh, to other people. For me, that it was fine. If it happened, it happened. That's kind of how my Azuri deck turned out, actually. Uh, I didn't mean for it to be a tri- in an elf tribal deck. It just happened to be, you know, all these good cards that I wanted to play just happened to be elves. So I've actually intentionally built a tribal deck zero times. I bought the tribal deck and then just one was an accident. So for me, it doesn't really change a whole lot. But I know a lot of people in my playgroups, you know, at the store... They were very excited about it. Even people that were playing tribes before, they got a lot of different help. There's a kid that, you know, I told several stories on that plays red-white allies. And the deck is terrible. It's red-white for one, and it's allies for two. So it's, a, you know, not a lot of support. But he still got stuff like Vanquisher's Banner in Ixalan block that, you know, when it comes into play, you can choose a creature type. It doesn't have to be anything from Ixalan. So red-white allies, even though it's still a bad deck got a lot of toys. So there's people that were playing, you know, tribal decks before that got help regardless of whatever tribe they were playing. Dana, I see here that you put in a note in our show notes about tribal specific anthem effects. Do you want to explain a little bit more what you mean here? Um, sure. Well, then there's a couple of different ways that works, but if you look at the original three tribal commanders way back in alpha, all of them give creatures of that type plus one, plus one. So Lord of Atlantis gives Merfolk plus one, plus one. And, I think Island Walk, I believe. Yes. And Go- Goblin Chieftain gave plus one, plus one, and Mountain Walk, and the Lord of the not Lord of the Undead, a Zombie Master gave plus one, plus one, and Swamp Walk. So that was the original thing that Tribe Lords did was give some kind of a bonus to all the creatures of that type, usually making them stronger. But you also see the little bit. There's there's things like Shared Triumph, which is a an enchantment that comes into play, and you choose a creature type and it buffs them. Or you have things like Door of Destinies, or there's another one I've forgotten, Coat of Arms, that's that are both artifacts that give your creatures a, a bonus based on creature type. There's Adaptive uh, Automaton, where you pick your tribe when it comes into play and it gives them a bump. So that's kind of the big thing about tribes is they tend to support one another. Maybe not to the level that slivers do, but they tend to, the cards tend to interact with one another in ways that make the other card better. Yeah, and this is actually something that's pretty important, I think, for tribes going forward, particularly after Ixalan. One of the big tribes that was in my eye was Merfolk, as both Tishana and Kumena came out, and they are new blue-green Merfolk tribal options. 
specifically Kamena, who allows you to tap Merfolk to do a bunch of cool things from making himself unblockable to drawing cards to pumping up your entire team. He's one Merfolk tribal option, but so is also Sig River Guide, which was from the old Lorwyn block. Only he didn't pump up his team at all. He was blue-white and he allowed you to get protection from a color for your Merfolk, which didn't quite work out as a Merfolk tribal option. People definitely dedicated a deck to it, but whenever I saw them playing... It was always a little, shall we say, lackluster. There wasn't quite enough happening in that deck. The access to Lord effects, as you mentioned, those anthems that boost your specific tribe, definitely helps out a deck. And that's what makes Gumena so significant. Since he's in green, he has a lot more access to those Lord effects to pump up all of his creatures. For example, there's Merfolk Mistbinder, which is a 2-mana two 2-2 two -two in green and blue that gives all of your other Merfolk you control plus 1, plus 1. Or there's Merkfiend Liege, which powers up all of your green and blue creatures and even untaps them, which is great for Kumena's ability. And this is what allows Kumena to have such good statistics for a tribal option, basically, as opposed to Sig River Guide. I know especially in Modern, for example, there is the Modern Merfolk deck, and that deck thrives off of being while it is blue-based, is actually quite the, the beater of a deck because all of those lords help support each other. But we don't, in a 100-card singleton format, we don't have that same density of lords necessarily, which is what makes something like Kumena so exciting, where Sig is not able to really capitalize on those lord effects that support all of his creatures. A creature like Kumena is because he does have more access to pumping up, and that gives the tribe more of that quintessential tribal deck feel. Yeah, I, I had a blue-white Sig river guide deck for a while, and it was not very good. Just blue-white. Just the colors weren't very good for commander-type creature decks. Having green access makes a big, big difference. Just, you know, whether you can ramp into bigger stuff. Just that, that white, it always felt bad. I've been trying to, to redo that deck, but it's been defunct for a while for the reasons you said. Yeah, the, the color combination makes a huge difference. Adding green to merfolk was wildly successful. I mean, in, in addition to the good lords you mentioned... Like you said, green just plays so well with having small creatures that you want to buff up. Even just from things like Beastmaster Ascension or Overwhelming Stampede. Yeah, green interacts with those small blue merfolk in a way that, that black and white really didn't. And that's, that, that's, that's true of a lot of different uh, tribes, too. I mean, the, the, the fact that you have red in Innistrad for vampires that wasn't really a thing gives you a whole different feeling when you play that Innistrad zombie deck than it does when you play the black-white one out of Ixalan. Those, those complementary colors complement the decks in very different ways. So Dana, you mentioned two artifacts earlier, and I find it kind of funny that you mentioned them because for the head-to-head -head segment where we try and guess which card is more popular than the other, I actually do have two cards here for you, Door of Destinies and Coat of Arms. So Door of Destinies is a four-mana artifact that, as it enters the battlefield, you choose a creature type, and whenever you cast a spell of that creature type, you put a counter on Door of Destinies. The creatures that you control of that type get stronger for each one of those counters. There's also Coat of Arms, which is a five-mana artifact that gives each creature on the battlefield plus one, plus one for each other creature that shares at least one creature type with it. So, it's funny that you mention them, because now I want you guys to guess which of those cards is more popular. Are we talking more popular overall? Yes. Not in any specific deck, just generally. Which is more popular, Door of Destinies or Coat of Arms? Well, I know Door of Destinies was in the Precon decks because it was in the the Vampire Commander deck. So I'm going to go just off that fact alone. I'm going to go with Door of Destinies. Yeah, there's a bunch of reasons I think Door is more popular. Um, it had a promo in Lorwyn that came out 
It was in the pre-con. And the big reason I would guess is it, it, it only affects your stuff. Because I've seen people get burned by a coat of arms before when they play a coat of arms, helping their creature. But a coat of arms works for all creatures. So even if it's not your creature, it can buff that creature if your opponent has a bunch of things in play. And I've seen that backfire on people before. So for all of those reasons, I'm going to guess Dwarf Destinies as well. You guys are correct. Dwarf Destiny shows up in 12,166 decks, while Coat of Arms shows up in 11,009 decks. So a difference of a little over 1,000 between them. With that said, though, in the right deck, I feel like they're both just excellent. Yeah, I mean, that, that difference is exactly like how many Edgar Markov decks there are out there. So, yeah, like you said, it shows just how popular both of them are. Yeah, Dwarf Destinies is neat, but it does take time to wind up. You have to sort of play it early and then play more of those creatures to get a big effect. And it is, as you mentioned, Dana, just for your own creatures, which is really, really nice. And that's probably why it sees more play than Coat of Arms, because it doesn't help your opponents. And after Ixalan, as I mentioned, there are certainly a lot of tribal decks running around. But man, when I drop a Coat of Arms, especially if I'm playing that uh, that Edgar Markov deck that I mentioned... My creatures will get like plus nine, plus nine or something, and it's hard to lose after that. It comes out of nowhere. You treat Coat of Arms like it's a one-time anthem that you're going to use to win the game. And I think the people that get burned by it are the ones that want to just drop it because they have the mana. And then we'll just see what happens, whereas you just need to use it for your, your, your killing blow, basically. That's exactly it. It's more of a crater hoof behemoth than it is uh, an enchantment. The Door of Destinies you can treat like an enchantment, but the Coat of Arms should be treated like a spell. Yeah, very much. Yeah, I, Door Destinies, like you said, you have to wind up for that haymaker. You you drop it, but it doesn't do anything that turn. Uh, whereas you know, Coat of Arms, you drop it, it it does something. You know, whether it's good or bad, though, is the is the real question, <laughs> right? Yeah. All right, Matt, do you have two cards for us to guess? I sure do. So I'm looking specifically at Goblin decks. So we talked about how they're you know one of our, one of the most popular tribes, number five of all time, and we're looking specifically at Krenko Mob Boss decks. So he's He's the number one built goblin commander in the number five tribe overall. But I have Impact Tremors versus Perforos, two very uh, similar cards. What do you think is played more? So Impact Tremors, two mana enchantment that deals one damage to each opponent whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control. And Perforos, the god from Theros, who does two damage to each opponent whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control. But the big difference between the two is, you know, Perforos does double, but Perforos also costs double. So he's three in a red versus one in a red for impact tremors. I'd have to give it to Perforos, I think. He's been around longer, so I think that that would bias the numbers in his favor. Man, I'm torn because in addition to costing more to cast, Perforos is a pretty expensive card. He's like closing in on 20 bucks, I want to say, last time I checked. But, I mean, he's at least 15, and he's been over 10 for a long time. And that's that makes a difference to people. I mean, it, it's easy to, to just assume people can put whatever cards they want in their decks. But when you're talking about $20, that's kind of a tough nut to crack for some people. So I'm going to guess Impact Tremor just because it's much easier to grab a dollar card and put it in your deck than it is to spend 15 on a Perforos. Yeah, so Dana is correct. Impact Tremors. Despite it being several years newer, it was, in, it was a common in Dragons of Tarkir. Impact Tremors has played in 80% of all Krenko decks versus 71% in uh, for Perforos. So they're both highly played and they're both at you know incredible synergy. Impact Tremors is 53% synergy, which you know is that remember that average above however many eligible decks could play it. 
Um, whereas Perforos is 44% synergy to the deck. So both of them are played at a very high clip. Both of them are very popular. But like Dana said, I think Perforos, even though I remember buying them for $6 and thinking that was expensive, you know, he's gone up quite a bit. And I think that price is kind of reflecting a little bit. All right. Well, I am last here. So I'm, I'm going to cheat slightly. Instead of two cards, I'm going to have three cards to compare. Ooh. How could you? You're ruining the game. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and, and I mentioned these three already. I mentioned the three original lords from Alpha, Lord of Atlanta, Zombie Master, and Goblin King. So of those three, which one do you think gets played more? Oh, I, this is such a good trick question. You would think that it would follow just with whatever the most popular tribe is, but I feel like I also haven't seen a lot of them in the same way that i've seen the popularity of lord of atlantis that one jumps to my mind more easily than the other two so i'm gonna have to guess that lord of atlantis takes the crown here i'm gonna go i'm trying to think of what card has been printed the most and i think that's goblin king i know lord of atlantis has been printed a lot too just because i have you know my my time spiral foils but I want to say Goblin King is the most played. I haven't seen a zombie master, zombie the, the zombie lord guy you mentioned. I haven't seen him in like a recent printing. I can't think of one, so I'm going to go with the, the Goblin. The answer is Zombie Master. What? Oh, well, dang but, it. But not we by were both huge, trying to outsmart the right. system. <sighs> but not by a huge margin. Zombie Master is in 2,700 decks. Goblin King is in just under 2,500. But Lord of Atlantis is lagging way behind in just over 800 decks. Some people just can't appreciate the finer things, man. Now, that's pretty interesting that it's only about, as you said, 800 decks behind or so, because as we can see on the Top Tribes page on EDHREC, Merfolk Tribal decks actually lag quite a lot behind Zombie and Goblin decks. We have nearly 4,000 Zombie Tribal decks on EDHREC, and then we have 2,594 Goblin decks, but Merfolk decks, we only have 780 total committed Merfolk tribal decks, according to EDHREC. So it's funny that it would be farther behind than it actually is the Lord of Atlantis, I mean. You also have the situation where there's a bunch of zombie lords. I mean, we even just got one in Uncommon in uh, Amon Cat that gives zombies plus one, plus one. So I, I would bet part of that discrepancy is you don't have to dig nearly as deeply to find your you know, half a dozen lords and zombies. Whereas if you want goblin lords, you, you know, goblin king is one of the five or six that you have access to. You probably want to run them all. Whereas you'll hit a point with zombies where you're like, I've got enough. I'm good. Yeah. When, when every creature's a lord, then right. I mean, it's a little overkill. I do have, I do have like one addendum trivia question here though. So those were the first three lords, tribal lords, and they each had one creature in Alpha as well. There was one other merfolk that got a benefit, scathed zombies, and there was, I think, Mon's Goblin Raiders and Goblin Balloon Brigade, I believe. So actually, Goblins had two. But what was the first expansion to throw out one of those three tribes for those lords? So we're talking oh, way back in the day now. I'm not going to be any good at this. <laughs> I'm I don't guess know nearly alliances. enough about I'm trying to sure, think of like I'll all do the old goblins. Hey, no, <laughs> get your own answer. <laughs> I don't know nearly enough about old magic sets, I'm afraid. So uh, and, I'm and not I able to. I wouldn't have known this. I was just curious. So I looked it up. I never would have guessed either. So don't feel bad for not knowing. The first one was actually in Antiquities was the first goblin that was added. It was Goblin Artisans of all things. And then there was nothing else added until the dark where we got Merfolk Assassin 
and I think there's one zombie in there as well. And they've since gone back and retyped a couple of creatures out of Legends into zombies. And there's also Cabal Ghoul out of Arabian Nights, which technically is the first expansion, but it wasn't a zombie until like 2007. It was a ghoul. So despite Ooh. having three lords in the game at Alpha, they didn't get new creature types of that type until Antiquities. Yeah, I remember one of my buddies, he's very, very big into old the old school format. And he showed me a Merfolk list that was for Merfolk or for Merfolk of the Pearl Trident and then for Lord of Atlantis. He's like, Matt, you have to build this deck. It's Merfolk and that's your thing. It's like, I know, but old school's just okay. But he was very excited, you know, to see a Merfolk deck and told me all about it. Well then you can run four clones and four of a Subin Doppelgangers and copy those Merfolk with the Pearl Trident. That's very true. All right, guys. I feel like I got to rein it back into the main topic here. I have another question for you guys regarding tribal. Well, we're just tribal. horsing around. Don't rein us in. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> Ignoring that pun, I have a question for you guys regarding tribal decks. I know that I registered my shock that something like, for example, Slivers isn't one of the most popular tribes of all time. But is there a specific tribe that you guys are surprised not to see? I know, Dana, you said that you were probably... Like, you would expect it that these would be the most popular tribes, but Matt, is there a tribe that you're surprised isn't more popular than it is? Um, I was I was looking through everything, and I was kind of surprised there aren't more dedicated warrior decks, actually. Um, I remember in the cons block, there were a lot of warrior matters type effects, like Chief of the Scale and Chief of the Edge, where warriors you control get plus one, plus oh, and you know those types of effects. But I was looking through, and there's not really a great warrior tribal like everything is a soldier is kind of like where all all the good commanders get picked off from because i was thinking and offends of the foremost one of the cons from the abzan tribe but who actually turns out to be a soldier not a warrior even though apparently you know joe you might have to clarify this you know the, the abzan were the warrior tribe but there aren't very many good legendary warriors but there's a lot of really good creatures but it just didn't add up so i was kind of surprised to see like there's almost zero you know, warrior tribal decks, the best commanders for that. It's probably like Crush the Bloodbraided or Zergo Helm Smasher, neither of which are very good for, for dedicated tribal decks. So I was kind of surprised to, to see that. Well, also prior to that block, the, the warriors were primarily in red or green. And then also in that mm -hmm. block, we get, we get a bunch in black and white. So it's really difficult to do have any kind of interaction when all the previous good warriors are not in the colors from the ones and cons. Yeah, it was very scattered because I remember, you know, it just, you know, in my Azuri deck, it was accidentally an elf, but it's also accidentally a warrior. Bramblewood Paragon is great for warrior decks, but it's in green. But if you're playing Zergo Helm Smasher, you, you're in Mardu colors and you can't play that. So it's just, yeah, the, the tribe is really scattered. It'd be nice if you could play something. Kind of ties everything in together, but there's not really a good commander for the warrior tribe. At least that cares about the warriors, I should say. I would wager that that's actually one of the main follies of some of those specific creature types. Warriors sort of blurs the line between warrior, soldier, and knight. We do see some more dedicated soldier tribal cards and more dedicated, especially with the upcoming set. I know that Ariel is another commander that's coming out that is a knight tribal card. But those combative creature types, those creature classes of warrior, it's, it's sort of difficult to distinguish what it is that makes each of them a little bit different, which is probably why they kind of all help to overshadow each other. Another big example of this would be Snake versus Naga. So there's the Cassetto deck that cares about snakes, but something like Sidisi, 
who's technically a snake when you look at the art. She's actually a Naga creature type. So all of those Sultai snake people cards, they don't quite fit into a snake tribal deck because the creature types don't actually communicate with each other. There are ways that tribes can sort of step on each other's toes because they're close enough to each other, but still mechanically separated. The one I was most surprised to see be as low on the list as it is is fairies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't know why necessarily. I thought it was going to be higher, but they have a couple fairly strong commanders. I mean, Una's a really strong commander, and Fidelian Click is obviously a fantastic card. I mean, you're stuck in mono blue, but I, I was surprised there wasn't some mono blue fairy control deck or more Una fairies or even Widwin. The Biting Gale is a is an interesting commander at least if you want to play some kind of a black blue control build. And I think she's pretty combo-tastic as well. I just thought there'd be a few more fairy decks, and it was really, really low on the list. Yeah, I wrote an article about standard fairies in my my article series, You know, taking one of those old decks from standard and turning it into a woodwind deck, and I was trying to find some good deck lists, and there's not a lot for fairies. So yeah, I, I kind of noticed that too when I was looking around and just, yeah, I, yeah, I very much agree that there aren't very many fairy decks out there. I think fairies is kind of in the same, same boat as Merfolk, where it it really needs some way to make those small evasive beaters bigger. I think at some point, if we were to get a Saltai, Saltai Fairy Commander, then you could put all those fairies, because there's a few in green as well, mix green in and then take advantage of the overrun kind of effects or the Beastmaster Ascension kind of stuff. I think that's when you'd probably see fairies really kind of shine. But in black, blue, or mono blue, when you're trying to win with 1-1 beats, that's a uphill battle. I'm glad you mentioned fairies because that actually sort of segues me into another topic that I want to bring up. I would expect that fairies aren't as popular of a tribe because they don't really have a very dedicated fairy tribal commander in the same way that we see from other tribal commanders, such as Merfolk. Merfolk was vastly improved by Kumena, who now cares about Merfolk and can pump them up. And we also have things like elves and zombies, and we do have a bunch of commanders that specifically say in their text... I want to do something regarding that creature's type, such as Geese and Giralf, which says, I get to cast a bunch of zombies, or what is that new one, Marwyn, who's a new upcoming elf commander who can tap for a bunch of mana after you play a bunch of elves, or even Azuri, the original, because he can pump up all of your elves. That really helps anchor a specific tribe, but there are a bunch of commanders that came out in the Ixalan block that I want to draw people's attention to because people are building them as tribal decks, when I don't think they should be. And this is something that you might hear come up again a couple of times. For example, Zakama Primal Calamity is a huge elder dinosaur that came out in Rivals of Ixalan. And currently, 40% of people, according to EDHREC, are submitting Zakama decks that are dinosaur decks. But Zakama doesn't actually care about dinosaurs. It doesn't say anything about dinosaurs in its text at all. There's also Vona, Butcher of Magan, who's a vampire knight, who lets you pay life to exile stuff, but... It doesn't do anything with vampires at all. Despite that, people are building 45% of Vona decks as vampire tribal decks. The same is also true of Tishana, Voice of Thunder. She's a merfolk, but that's about where it ends for her. Aside from the fact that she is a merfolk, she doesn't care about them. She cares about the number of cards in your hand. And yet, despite that, 42% of Tishana decks are merfolk tribal decks. When they don't necessarily need to be. There are other places to put all those merfolk. For example, Kumena. There are other places to put all of those dinosaurs, like Gishoth, which helps you play free dinosaurs. There are other places to put all those vampires, like Edgar Markov. So it's just interesting to me that folks are building tribal decks around commanders that don't actually care about that specific creature type. What are your guys' thoughts? 
it's been my experience that Commander is the format, uh, way more so than any other format, where people want to express their creativity. Not everybody, obviously, but like that's something I find to be a very attractive thing about the format. And a lot of people I know look at it that way too. For them, deck building is a is a really important part of what they do. And, you know, I think if you want to build a dinosaur tribal deck and there's three of them in your meta already that are using Gishath, well, I, I can understand why then you're like, okay, well, I don't want to have another Gishath deck, so I'm going to build a comma so I can do something different than everybody else. So I, I would guess that's probably the main factor there. It's people just looking to do something different than what everybody else is doing. See, I, my worry is that it's actually kind of the opposite. My worry is that folks are building tribal decks with those commanders because of the set that they came in. If Tishana had shown up in Amonkhet for some reason, I don't feel like people would have you know, decided to build her as a merfolk deck. They just built that because in the set that she came in, Ixalan, there happened to also be a whole bunch of other merfolk tribal cards around her. So it... I don't know. I, I don't mean to make it sound like a, a huge criticism, but it smacks of maybe lazy deck building because they're only building things within their proximity as opposed to building things that, you know, those commanders actually do desire. Tashana is very similar to Prime Speaker's Aegana. They both want you to have big creatures and a bunch of cards in your hand. And I feel like sort of the way that we mentioned about the precon effect, if any of those cards had come in a natural set as opposed to in the precon the cards that we would see recommended for them on EDH rec would be different. Just like with the precon effect, there's also sort of a set effect where people are building, they're prioritizing the cards that come around that commander when maybe they shouldn't. Yeah, well, it was kind of like what I said a little bit about Edgar Markov. You know, he just happened to be able to capitalize on an entire Ixalan block promoting vampires, and he had a precon full of vampires. So I think that was one of the reasons that Edgar got so popular. But then, I mean, it's like what we talked about in the pre-con episode. You see all the secondary commanders still get very popular within that tribe. So I think a little bit could just be your lazy deck building. Maybe people, you know, they want to build the tribe. They want to build that theme, but they just don't like that commander. So maybe some people, you know, I know I've seen it in person a few times, you know, knowingly choose a subpar commander. I played against a guy who he plays a bunch of Innistrad block cards and then you know, the, the return to Innistrad, and he plays Geist of St. Traft, um, which isn't a very good spirit commander, but he plays spirit tribal in it. And I've always kind of scratched my head at that. Geist of St. Traft is, you know, he's an aggressive three drop, hex proof, so he's hard to interact with. He makes a 4-4 angel, but he loves playing all the, the blue-white spirits. Do I think it's the best choice? No, but he just likes the, the theme, and so it's a little bit to Dana's point. He knows it's not the best choice. He he knows Braga would probably be better, but he just likes the flavor to it. So I think, you know, I think there's more deck builders out there that just want to express themselves. They just want to fully commit to the theme of whatever they're doing, where, you know, some compromises are willingly made. I think that I think that probably happens more than we would give it credit for. I think there's also sometimes some hidden synergies you can find in some of these kind of off-brand commanders in terms of of the tribe. I mean, I'm, I'm running that Sphinx Tribal deck, which I kind of started doing, not really as a joke, but I just kind of wanted, I had a bunch of Sphinxes, and I'm like, oh, that would be kind of funny to beat someone with a Sphinx Tribal deck, right? So I put it together and, and started playing. And what I discovered was, if you're playing a control shell, which white and blue kind of lend themselves to, if you have a control shell and the deck's filled with 5-5 five, five creatures with evasion that do things, 
that's a pretty good way to finish a game in a control shell. Like that's one of the things that control tends to struggle with, particularly in commanders. How do you end a game? Well, when you've got you know 30 damage that people can't block in the air and a fistful of counter spells, that's a pretty effective way to close a game out. Even though those sphinxes might not buff one another or might not have any interaction with my commander that makes them better, that's kind of a weird hidden synergy I discovered there and how the deck plays out. So I don't I don't necessarily I'm not going to argue that like a lot of these oddball commanders do that, but Sometimes they maybe do. And there is something to be said for staking your own claim within Commander. This is a format almost exclusively dedicated to creativity. You don't want to be pigeonholed into one specific thing. You know, I hear Sphinx Tribal and my mind immediately jumps to Unesh because he specifically states, oh, play Sphinxes in his rules text. But you're going for a different approach because you want to make a different statement. You want to express something different. And I think that's also probably true for the folks who are building those non-tribal commander for a tribal deck sort of those deals like it, it does make a lot of sense that you want to create the thing that is most yours and so maybe i should learn not to be such a stickler about it just because you know vona doesn't say vampires on it doesn't mean that you can't still have fun with a bunch of really awesome vampires well and i think there's two different angles to that too like because i totally agree with you there are situations where people are running something that's you know not just suboptimal but maybe downright terrible as a tribal deck, but that's, that doesn't bother me if the person knows they're doing it. It only bothers me when they don't. So like, if they think this bad deck they've built is a great way to play that tribal deck, then that's when I kind of agree with you. Like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. But when they say, well, yes, this isn't the optimal way to do it, but this is how I want to beat you. The suboptimal deck that's, you know, avatar tribal, and I'm going to defeat you with avatar tribal. So that's going to be fun. Um, I totally get that. Like I, I'm, on, I'm all on board with that. All right. While we're talking about some commanders that maybe should or maybe shouldn't be running certain tribes, I'm still in the mood to challenge some statistics. So let's move into that segment now. We're going to be talking mostly about cards that have high statistics or perhaps low statistics that we think should probably be the other way around and mostly with a tribal bend to them. I'm going to start us off with the card Urza's Incubator. I'm going to challenge the stats on this one. Urza's Incubator is a three mana artifact that as it enters the battlefield you'll choose a creature type and creature spells of that chosen type will cost two colorless mana less to cast. This is a really exciting card and in fact it's a really expensive card now too given all of the hype around tribal cards from the last year. It's gone up to like $21 or something which is insane but I also don't think it's quite as good as people think it is. That two mana discount is significant. That's really good but as you can also see when you look on the page for Urza's Incubator, you can see a pie chart next to it about the average type distribution of decks that you'll usually find Urza's Incubator within. Specifically, there are around 30 creatures in a deck that happens to usually include Urza's Incubator. That's really cool that you can get a discount on 30 cards in your deck, but if you were to play something like Commander Sphere or Darksteel Ingot or something like that, that would provide you with one mana for all of the cards in your deck. Urza's Incubator is a great card, but it only discounts some of your cards. And I just want to make sure that people are raising a properly critical eye towards that card because it doesn't actually help cast all of the spells in your deck, which you usually want your mana rocks to be able to help you with. Yeah, I mean, it, the reason it works in Eldrazi builds or maybe some kind of a dedicated artifact creature deck is because those creatures all have two 
colorless mana in their casting costs, right? So you can sometimes chain two or three or four of them in a turn and save yourself four, six, or eight mana. Um, but you would be shocked if, if you go to a deck building site like MTG Goldfish or go to to deck stats or something and, and look at decks that are running Urza's Incubator. There is a shocking amount of those decks that have like 22 creatures. And they're probably of a tribe, but they'll have a, a, a small amount. And then if you go through and count the mana symbols, of those 22, like 11 or 12 have double colorless mana costs. And then like three or four more have single colorless mana and the rest are no colorless mana. So they're running a artifact in their deck that helps, fully helps 10% of their entire deck and half helps another 5%. I mean, that's, yeah, that's that, terrible. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it. I was going to mention Urza's Incubator. The number one deck that runs it is Sliver Overlord, which is a great Sliver Commander. There are 381 Sliver Overlord decks that run Urza's Incubator. And if you look at the top cards of a Sliver Overlord deck, the signature cards are Sliver Hive Lord, which is five mana. None of it is colorless. You need white, blue, black, red, green to play it. The next most popular card is Gemhide Sliver, which is one colorless and a green, or Mana Weft Sliver, which is one colorless and a green. Below that, you have Quick Sliver, which is one colorless and a green, and then there's Crystalline Sliver, which is just white and blue. Urza's Incubator only gives you a discount on three of those five most popular slivers, and this, the discount is only one because there isn't a two to discount. So it's not really quite as good there as people might think it is. It looks like a great card, and in some decks it is, especially if you're running things like you mentioned Eldrazi, or even perhaps Dinosaurs. They're very, very expensive. But you definitely want to take a look at the ratios in your deck at what cards this mana rock can help discount, because it will not discount all of the spells in your deck, and that's usually what you need mana rocks to do. Yeah, yeah when you think about it, you're kind of like, you're going to buy groceries and you hand the cashier a coupon for buy one, get one free, but you just don't want the free one, you just want to buy one with a coupon, and you're not really actually getting anything out of it. Uh, I think what Dana said, though, if you build your deck right, you can get, you know, that mana that you invested to get Incubator out. You can get that investment back, you know, that very next turn if you build your, your deck right, because you're getting an eight mana discount right off the bat. Um, kind of like what you both got, you know, both of you guys are saying, uh, if you build your deck right, you can very much take advantage of it. Just people aren't is the, the big thing. I mean, I, yeah. I, I checked at one point in time looking at doing the math in my Sphinx deck. Every one of my Sphinxes in that deck, I believe, has a double colorless casting cost. And I still figured it wasn't worth, because I only have 18 creatures plus a commander. So I'm like, it's not worth running that rock just to save me two mana off of, you know, less than 20% of my deck. Yeah, I've never really considered Urza's Incubator in my own decks. And I played a, a Rakdos Lord of Riots deck for a little bit. But I was a baller and bought Planar Gate instead because when I bought it, it was only like $10. Yeah, I just think that even running like a Worn Power Stone, which is a three mana artifact that can produce two colorless mana, even that can sometimes be better than an Urza's Incubator because it provides two colorless mana for any of your spells, such as your instants and sorceries, where Urza's Incubator might sit on the battlefield and not really help you all out that much. But I think we've lingered long enough on my pick. Matt, what about yours? Yeah, so my pick is one that I think is terribly underplayed, and I, I found it actually in my Azuri Claw Progress deck, um, but it's an old card from Dark Ascension, uh, and it's Call to the Kindred. Uh, it's an enchantment aura for three and a blue, and so it reads, at the beginning of your upkeep, you may look at the top five cards of your library. If you do, you may put a creature card that shares a creature type with the enchanted creature from among them onto the battlefield, 
then put the rest of the cards on the bottom of your library in any order. So I know a lot of people don't really like auras at all, but this one has so much upside. I've written about it in a couple of my articles, just how great this card is. You dig deep for five, you know, five cards deep, and you can find any creature. So even if it's not, you know, an elf specifically, but if it's a warrior, it just has to share any creature type. So if you have a chain, put on a changeling, you just get a free creature, which I did more often than not. It's only played in 1,665 decks on EDH Rec right now, which just is crazy to me because there's so much upside with this. I think it's a card you definitely have to have the right build for because I've seen it in decks, I think a five-color, I can't remember if it was Scion or, or just Ur-Dragon. I think it was a Scion deck where it routinely was just dropping, you know, seven drop dragons into play. Mm-hmm. That's absurd. But, you know, if you're trying to play it in your, maybe your Merfolk deck, and your merfolk, your density of merfolk is, you know, you have 22 merfolk or something, you're going to whiff a lot, and well, who cares if you maybe save one or two mana on your cheap merfolk. So I think it's definitely one of those cards you have to be conscious of what deck you're putting it in, but in the right deck, it can be absurd. I, I do like that trick that you mentioned about putting it on a card with Changeling, because then any of the five cards that you flip, if they're a creature, it will match the creature type, and then you can put them into play for free. That's a really neat trick. I expect that the Mistform Ultimus, that legendary creature that is all creature types, mm-hmm. I expect that that's a thing that they like to take advantage of. Yeah, and just for reference, too, you know, just to compare it to Herald's Horn, which is one of the new pre-con artifacts that just came out last year, and all that does, it gives you a discount. You know, as it enters the battlefield, you choose a creature type, gives you a discount of one generic mana on that, and then you look at the top card, so you don't get to dig five cards. You only look at the top card, and if it matches that creature type, you put it into your hand. This goes five cards deep and puts it straight on the battlefield, which more often than not is going to be way better than just that one mana. Harold's Horn is played in over 3,100 decks, whereas Call of the Kindred is barely in 1,600 decks. So very, very different numbers-wise when, to me, this card has way more upside. I think another really useful parallel there would be uh, Descendant's Path, a Mm three-mana enchantment from Avacyn Restored, which also has a similar effect of the Herald's Horn, only if you reveal the top card and it shares a creature type with a creature you control, you actually get to cast that card without paying its mana cost, as opposed to putting it into your hand. And that's another pretty neat parallel there as well. But I, I think I would agree with you that the Call to the Kindred digging deeper is really important. So I... I would agree with you that that probably deserves to see more play. It's also in blue, which has a little bit more ability to manipulate the top deck of your library or at least shuffle cards out of the top. Then that makes a difference too. Yeah, I mean, you, just, you know, that when the trigger happens, you can brainstorm if you really wanted to and put something on top of your deck. There's a lot of tricks you can do with it. And just, it's a 50 cent card, which blows me away. It's, it's very cheap, but it's still terribly underplayed. You know, people are obviously playing more Herald's Horn, which is, pushing $10 now, I think. It's, it's way more expensive than Call of the Kindred. If you guys want a cheap 50 cent upgrade to any tribal deck, Call of the Kindred is A+. All right, Dana, what's your pick? My pick is an enchantment out of Onslaught, Steely Resolve. It's in 1300 decks, 1306 to be exact. It's one in a green for an enchantment. When it comes into play, you choose a creature type, and creatures of the chosen type have Shroud. Um, this should be in a lot more decks, um, particularly if you're playing tribal and you're playing green. The amount of spells you're probably running that target your own creatures is minimal to none. I mean, maybe a berserk here or there. There's just not a lot of stuff people tend to do in EDH, particularly in green, that targets their own creatures. 
So the ability to give yourself and give all your creatures of that tribe shroud for two mana and have it sit there as an enchantment that tends to be probably one of the most difficult uh, card types to remove in the game is really valuable. I, I feel like it should be in, in, in at least, I mean, I don't know how many decks, but it should be in more than 1300, I would think. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. It's especially strange to me that the top commander that that plays Steely Resolve is actually General Tazri, the ally commander. After that, it's Sliver Overlord, then Sapling of Kolfenor, of all things. I guess Treefolk Tribal? Yeah, this seems to me to be a card that's flying severely under the radar. People don't aren't completely aware that this one's out there, but it's a really good option to keep your tribe protected. Well, and what's super weird about it is it was sitting at like two or three dollars and it had a bit of a price spike last year when the when the tribal decks were leaked. But the only tribal deck, I mean, not the only one, but like the cat deck is the one I think people were looking at it for, which is the deck that can use it the least since your commander actually targets your creatures to give them plus three, plus three. So for some reason, people bought a bunch of Steely Resolves last year for their cat deck, even though that was like literally the worst deck to put it in. Yeah. Yeah. A Robo actually targets your cards and Shroud would prevent that. Why would they do that? Yeah. I did. That's weird. But I mean, aside from like that kind of a weird corner case, it, it just is never going to cause you problems and it's going to keep people from removing your stuff while you're trying to kill them. So yeah, it, it should be in more decks. Yeah. I wonder if one of the reasons why it sees less play is because it helps your cards like it prevents things like Path to Exile or Swords of Plowshares or Chaos Warp from hitting your creatures, but it doesn't stop board wipes. And in a tribal deck, board wipes are definitely one of the things that can really set you far back. When you're dedicating yourself to a creature-specific strategy, a Wrath of God can reset you completely because your entire strategy was just destroyed. Steely Resolve doesn't quite protect from those effects, so I wonder if that's one of the reasons why people aren't playing it as much. But then you look at all the people that play, you know lightning greaves and those types of cards just to protect their commander i mean if you're playing green you can play this and just name the creature type that your commander is and we all know that enchantments are a little bit harder to interact with than artifacts so if you're running lightning greaves and the only reason you're doing it is just to protect your commander why wouldn't you want to play steely resolve is my question because you know you get incidental value on top of that so i i agree with dana i think it should be in a lot more a lot more decks than it is yeah, I can't argue with that. I, That's, I will throw a caveat yeah. out there. I mean, to be fair, the card is, you know, 20 years old and hasn't had a reprint since then. So it's probably a large portion of the player base that literally does know it exists. And it also, bear in mind, it affects all creatures of the chosen type. So technically, if someone else has, you know, if you if you name elves in your elf deck and someone else happens to have an Edric out or something, you then can't target that Edric. So it does affect all creatures of that type, even ones that aren't yours. So there are a few downsides. There's a downside and an explanation for why maybe people don't have it in their decks. It's not enough to, to not run it, I don't think. I mean, it, in that case, though, you could almost be smarmy about it and, like, say your Rafik buddy, you know, wants to soup it up with a bunch of equipment and everything, just put it down and name human, and then he can't do anything. So you can, you know, it's really corner Casey, I know, but you could turn it, you know, into an offensive weapon even, too. Oh, you know, that hadn't occurred to me, but absolutely, that's a cool play. I feel like I've been saying this a lot on the podcasts, but you're a mean, mean man, Mr. Morgan. <laughs> You'll get over it. All right. I have one final question for you guys, one that I didn't get the chance to ask before. In the Commander 2017 tribal decks, we saw the ability Eminence, which allows the commanders to still have an effect even when they're not on the board. This was definitely a powerful tool for them to still have that tribal element, for example, with the Ur-Dragon creating 
dragons for cheaper or Edgar Markov making tokens whenever you play a vampire. And that helped those commanders feel like they were still committing to a tribal strategy even when you didn't play them. But there's been a lot of, I don't know, mixed opinions about the eminence ability. And I'm just kind of curious what you guys thought of it. I like it. Yeah, I think it's it's fine. I don't love it or anything, but I don't think it's that problematic either. I think I think they kept it under control power level wise enough. Maybe not in the case of Edgar Markov, but even Edgar in a multiplayer game, he's manageable. Yeah, in a multiplayer game, Edgar Markov definitely loses a lot of his power. You know, we talked about him being banned in the 1v1 format, but in multiplayer, he's very, very fair. I think they learned it's probably one of the hardest abilities to balance, probably, because you had Aloro and, uh, you know, if you listen to Brainstorm Brewery and Jason always talks about, you know, it's the most popular ability nobody ever asked for at least in wizards' minds, that is, it's really hard to balance because, you know, you get this static ability and, you know, with Edgar, he can get out of hand really quick. I actually found, you know, one of the more powerful, if you play it right, is Arabo, the eminence ability there. I, You know, our buddy who played the cat deck in our, our league that we had, he probably won more, more games because he, you know, souped up a cat real quick and just one-shotted people. So just power-wise, that was really good. I think they just need to find a way to make all of those eminence abilities fair because the wizards kind of fell behind a little bit, whereas the other three could have been very, very, very powerful. Um, wizards are getting a huge boost in Dominaria. I think what was the joke that was made that we heard earlier where the Dominaria is a better wizard tribal deck than the wizard precon was? <laughs> the whole bunch of new wizards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's I, I think it's people get frustrated about abilities that they can't interact with. And I think that is something they need to also be careful about. Because um, it definitely kind of, I don't know if I use the term feel bad, but like it does create a little bit of that when your opponent's able to do things that you cannot at all respond to or deal with. That's frustrating. But when the power level is under control, it's much less frustrating than it is with something like like Mizzix, where you're like, oh man, he's got seven counters, and if he casts that commander again, I'm going to lose a game. And you can't interact with that either. So I, th- I think that the experience counters was a much bigger problem in terms of in- stuff that you can interact with than Eminence was. Although I don't love Eminence, but they at least didn't screw it up, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know. for me when I saw the Eminence commanders, I, I was kind of like, I don't know, guys. I feel like this is a pretty lazy solution for tribal decks. But the like you know that your commander is basically just an emblem that can also sometimes come out onto the battlefield to play, but doesn't really have to to do anything. I wasn't really here for that. But then the more that I thought about it, I I've mentioned I have a crew fix deck, and that is almost never an actual creature. That's just an enchantment, which is sort of along the same lines. This is a commander that isn't fitting the role of creature necessarily, and. I, the more that I think about it, the more I'm okay with it. So I was just curious what your guys' thoughts are. Yeah, I, th- I think Wizards is learning their lesson every time they do it by making a mechanic you can't interact with. Like, we always talk about how powerful energy was because there's no way to interact with it, you know, on the other player's side. Same with the Eminence abilities. Same with, you know, the, the Theros gods. They just need to be a little more, I don't think a little more careful. They just need to make sure when they are designing cards they have that in mind, especially if, you know, if they're trying to bring new players in with these products, it can be a little hard when you do stuff that new players don't know how to react to. Alrighty, those were our thoughts on Tribal in Commander, and I think with that, we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host for joining me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, guys. It was good being here again. Thank you, Dana. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And if our listeners would like to find us, where can they contact you all? 
So I'm on Twitter at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. Same for Instagram, I guess, Facebook, all those different things. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. And if you want to hear another hour of me talking about Commander, you can find me on the CMDR Central podcast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can follow EDHREC on Facebook and Twitter at EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on the same platforms on EDHREC cast. You can also follow the EDHREC subreddit if you have a question or perhaps a request for a new site feature. And P.S. If the EDHREC Facebook page gets 5,000 likes, there's going to be a giveaway. So head over there to smash that like button for a chance at a cool prize. Double P.S. We're also doing a giveaway for the EDHRECcast Twitter page once we hit 1,000 followers. So be sure to check out the EDHRECcast on Twitter as well. As Dana mentioned, you can check out his other podcast at cmdrcentral.libsyn.com. You can check us out at edhretcast.libsyn.com or contact us at edhretcast at gmail.com. You can also find us now on iTunes, and if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help boost our visibility and help other folks find the podcast. You can also find this podcast and more on EDHREC's very own community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other Commander content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by EDHREC's own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, and until then, remember, EDHREC your deck before you wreck your deck. Kreger Kegger? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Just an alcohol-themed baby shower? Absolutely. It absolutely is an alcohol-themed baby shower. I have multiple concerns. <laughs> oh, I, I, there's a lot to unpack. You're assuming that someone who would throw a Kreger Kegger isn't going to be drinking it. It sounds very Wisconsin. It's actually worse that it's Upper Michigan. <laughs>